This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. My name is Jane and you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show brought to you every Monday at 5pm at this time on 3CR and available by podcast on the 3cr.org.au podcast page after the show or the bze.org.au podcast page. Tonight is the first night of the True Summer Series where Viv and I are bringing you the best of the best from 2015. We start off the summer series tonight with Guarding Eden, where Vivian brought into the studio four of the 12 contributors to the book Guarding Eden, which, by the way, it's not too late to put this on your Christmas list. It's a great read. Guarding Eden tells the personal stories of 12 ordinary people who were so moved by the spectre of climate catastrophe that uh, they got out there and did something about it. First broadcast on the 31st of August. As I say, this is a particular favourite of mine and I hope you enjoy it too. Good evening, everybody. Tonight, I'm very excited. We have four climate activists with us in the studio. Jane's on panel and we've never had so many people in here. They all appear in the new book called Guarding Eden by Deborah Hart. Thanks to the publishers, Alan and Unwin, who sent me a copy. Now, our guests are Deborah Hart... Fiona Armstrong, Carol Ride and Julian Vincent. And he's the one who scaled a smokestack in Italy to paint the word stupid on it in huge letters. But first we'll talk to Deborah. Why did you bring us the stories of these climate champions, Deborah? Oh, Vivian, gosh, how long's a piece of string? There seemed so many reasons why we needed to, to have a different conversation. Um... When I first got involved in the movement in about 2005, 2006, it just struck me that there were a lot of people doing really exciting things and that their their stories were were certainly not what the government and industry portray activism to be. Um, The the people that I was meeting, you know, like the ones in the book, but also many others um, who've worked in this movement for, for as, you know, as long as we have and longer, um, were just really concerned people and who were informing themselves about this problem and about the solutions that are available and actually taking 
the leadership in the community and those stories just weren't being heard. Well, you're right that the media don't portray these people in the correct way and your book does a lot to redress that and I hope people listening, maybe teachers or students out there, you'd like this book. It's just written in a very attractive way. It's 12 little stories and so we've got the people with this few of them in in the studio tonight. Deborah, I'd like you to tell us a little bit what motivated you. Could you take us back to your childhood in Texas? Well, um, I actually had lots of childhoods, to be honest, because we moved all the time because my father was um, an energy specialist and at that time that meant... And I'm talking... um, I was born in in the mid-60s and... Uh, he was a, a nuclear as well as fossil fuel specialist. He had um, been involved in the in um, designing aspects of Hazelwood, mm. which was, you know, again, that's kind of haunted me. So yeah. I always got a bit of a thing about wanting to um, really to, to help the Latrobe Valley transition. Um, but anyway, I, I went to um, 14 schools, mm. so... Um, Texas was certainly a really interesting experience and I moved from La Jolla, California, where he was working on some nuclear projects, to Port Arthur, Texas, and it was such a shock. Mm. It was like there were no butterflies, there were... um, It's an industrial Mm. ghetto, really. Mm. Um, It's a refining town, it's where the... Um, Tar sands, um, if that project goes ahead, that's where that'll all be refined. Mm. It's... It's um, it was a pretty scary place. It was scary driving into it. It was scary when I stopped smelling the horrible fumes mm-hmm. because, you know, all the senses in my nose um, actually died, as my father said they would. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, oh, don't worry. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking that sounds absolutely <laughs> mad. Even though I knew my dad was a really smart guy, mm-hmm. that sounded totally nuts. And it's, it's heavily polluted. So... It's not just the people living in those places. We didn't live there for more than um, about six months. We then moved on to Houston. Mm. I lived in Houston a second time after then going back to California. But So the, the transitions between living in highly polluted places like Texas mm. and then reasonably unpolluted places like California was striking even as a small child. But... Um, Houston is, it's a town built on oil money. Um, kind of coincidentally, um, my new neighbour in the floor below me, um, I got into the lift not long ago and said, you know, hi, oh, well, you know, welcome, where are you from? And out came this, you know, incredibly Texan accent. And I yeah. said, wow, are you like maybe from Houston? And he said, yeah. I said, do you work in the fossil fuel industry? Yeah. He said, doesn't everybody? I said, oh, well, it hasn't changed then. So that was kind of um, interesting. Well, but I think yeah. that's marked your childhood and it, it's good to have those experiences. I went to an open cut mine once and I've never looked back just seeing it. Mm. Imagine living there. You know, these experiences, we have to have them to motivate us. And as an adult, I think you've had a lot to do with the arts and uh, you've been involved in lots of groups, Climb Art and these Climb Acts and so on. Um, and I have mostly seen you turning up as a an angel, beautiful guardian angel with others and uh, also somebody from the Flat Earth Society. And we can't have a visit from them tonight, but I hope one other day they'll grace us with their presence. But, sure you know, sort of, to. <laughs> yeah, satire and comedy, it's all different from just all the different types of activism is what, what your book covers. And I'd like you to tell me how do these dramatisations affect people? You know, they might have come to rally against a coal mine down at Caselwood, then you appear as a guardian angel or a flat earther. How does this affect people? Um, 
Well, people love stories, mm. and I guess it gets back to why I wanted to write the book, to make things real, to make conversations more humane, um, to make us laugh. Sometimes I think it's just therapy for myself, to be <laughs> honest, because I've written my body weight in submissions many times over, and yeah, with this book included, I think I've done enough writing. Mm. But anyway, the scripts are so much fun. But the the characters, the narratives, are they are very well thought through. We don't just show up in crazy costumes. Absolutely everything is thought through because we are challenging, obviously, very um, powerful interests, but we are, in most of our characters, mocking them. Mm. And you have to be very careful about how you do that. And it's it's got to be um, personally felt without personally targeting, mm. if that makes sense. Can you tell us one example of that? Um, well, uh when Greg Hunt was um, giving his uh, great talk about how fabulous the di- direct action plan would be to mm. the Grattan Institute, um, you know, I said to Liz, we've just got to do something. Come on, let's just go. Let's just, the two of us win as medieval astronomers because it was kind of a snap action. Mm. And her partner came and took photos on his phone. But we we managed to, um, with some little flyers in ye olde worldy language and mm. kind of cream parchment paper, we managed to be at the bottom of the stairs at the um, Ian Potter uh, lecture theatre. So people have to come in and they're basically mm. then confronted by these two, you know, two middle-aged women and, you know, dressed in some, you know, 12 AD men's kind of medieval <laughs> outfits saying, oh, you know, welcome, welcome to the Flat Earth Institute with our host, Greg Hunt. And he came down and at first he, you know, he, he smiled, he laughed. And then he, he, kind of took one of our flyers and he read it and was basically talking about how we were congratulating him for his idea to sequen- see sequester emissions in his grandma's scones and, you know, congratulating him for having a compost in the back shed and Australia, you know, everything will be fine. And anyway, it was so ridiculous and written in, you know, really ridiculous language. And we managed to get rid of all of our flyers, and we had like 200 of them or something. Yeah. So, And people were taking them. So before he'd even begun, the entire talk was kind of framed. Sabotaged. But, <laughs> and he was, he's a very controlled man, as you mm. know. He was absolutely rageful. And, you know, Liz actually stepped out of cost, uh, like character for a moment and um, just said, you know, look, what's issue it here is that you know that what you're doing is not enough mm-hmm. and that's what makes you very dangerous. And he he just didn't know what to say and he just ran off and then he stormed back and he said something or other about percentage, blah, blah, blah. And we just <laughs> looked at him and said, are you joking? It's not enough. And we just kept carrying on. Yeah. But it, it's confronting and we really did see, yeah, see him have to um, respond and – and we sat in the audience too and it was interesting to see him trying to avert our gaze. And yeah. at one stage he nearly mentioned us and you could just see this flash across uh-huh. his face like, no, don't draw attention to it. That yeah. would probably be stupid. And uh-huh. he didn't. Well, thank you for that. That's, um, there are a lot of stories in your book and all the activists have stories to tell like that direct confrontation. It's not for the faint-hearted really. And as you said, it has to be prepared and planned so you control the outcome of it. But um, 
What do you think about direct action, our sort of direct action, not Greg Hunt's type of direct action? I, mean, I interviewed him ages ago before the election. He told me all about algae and all this, you know, it's going to be an algae-led revolution as far as he could say to me. But but mm. I didn't, and the Green Army was going to be rolled out. I've never heard any of that stuff since. But tell me about the other sort of direct action, you know, this sort that Julian does and a lot of other people. Is this the most effective way to protest against fossil fuels, to stop them in their track, you know, to lock yourself onto the machinery or so on? Um, uh, In my view at the moment, um, we need everything. But we don't – I certainly wouldn't advocate direct action just for the sake of kind of locking onto things Um, because it's really got to be strategically thought through. You've really got to know exactly what it is you are aiming to achieve with something. Mm. And I think the divestment campaign that, you know, Julian's going to speak about Mm. in a minute is just absolutely brilliant. As much as I wish it wasn't money that that speaks so loudly, unfortunately, you know, it is. So let's work with that. Let's do absolutely everything we can with that. Thank you. So we've been talking to Deborah Hart, the author of the book Guarding Eden. Now, after a small break, we'll talk to Julian Vincent. Back in the studio talking to the people who are involved in the book Guarding Eden. Julian Vincent is now the manager of Market Forces and we've spoken to him before on this program in very sober terms about finances and so on. They help people redirect their finances away from fossil investments but tonight Julian will tell us his personal story. So welcome Julian. Could you take us back to that university class you were in where Professor David Caroli was speaking to you. Yeah, sure. Um, that was my, my oh shit moment, if it's not uh, too early for that. So I studied climate science at Monash University and I just wanted to be a weatherman, study weather and climate. I'm fascinated by it, still am. Um, but I had the privilege of being taught by some of the professors who are now I'm so proud to say I was so outspoken on the issue of climate change and the need for strong climate action. And I was lucky enough to be there at a time when I had the the raw science of climate change as a 2000, 2001, really laid bare in front of me and, and, and me as one of dozens of people taking these classes. And, you know, quite a few of us sort of were turning to each other at the time. And I think we're all connecting the dots saying, well, these things that appear as equations and graphs mm. we can translate those in our heads to impacts and sea level rise and what that means for low-lying communities and the sheer inhumanity of what all of this very dry material actually meant and it was terrifying um and i think i felt at the time that it was not only motivating in the sense that i felt like i needed to do something about it but i also realized that there's only a few dozen people sitting here in this room and this is so important and it felt like a weight of responsibility and uh, in a way a privilege to get this information but a responsibility to do something with it. So mm. that's what really set me off on the course of doing something yeah. on climate. Well, I, now there's a whole generation who say, oh, we did climate change at school, you know, and they do know about it but they only know it in a sort of bland way. You took it a step upwards and it led you to Greenpeace. 
And there's a photo of you in uh, Deborah's book sitting on top of a huge smokestack in Italy, I think, above a sign saying, no jobs on a dead planet. Tell us how you got there. <laughs> um, oh, which bit of the thousands-mile journey should I, should I focus on? The um, interesting bits. The interesting <laughs> bits. Well, um, so this was one of uh, four power stations that Greenpeace had gone and occupied at the same time on the morning when the G8 was um, going to start um, in L'Aquila in Italy in 2009. Um, that was in the road to Copenhagen. Um, it was clear that it was a huge year. Something spectacular needed to happen um, in the events leading up to it. We needed to do something spectacular to really hone these meetings' attention on climate change as a key issue that year. And so uh, we could think of nothing better than to really target the site of the pollution. And so I was fortunate enough to be asked to join one of the activities and really be an English-speaking spokesperson Mm. um, on that. And so we spent two and a half days, um, 200 metres above the ground, on on a chimney stack. Yeah, well, Deborah emphasised in her book how careful you were with mathematical precision and almost commando-like cooperation you got there, and then you disabled the lift so no one else could get up there and pull you down. (laughs) Tell us a bit more about that. What was it like sitting up there so high? And plus it was hot in her book. She said it was hot. How yeah, on earth was, did you get this up there? This is summer in southern Italy, so it was baking hot. Um, but the chimney, was, was the chimney hot too? It, it was all sorts of things. I mean, it was beautiful and tragic at the same time. You know, depending on the direction we looked, you could see across the Mediterranean or you could see massive piles of coal going on and on. Um, you knew that just a few metres above your head was the site of the, the single biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Italy, right there just a few metres away, mm. um, billowing out. Um, it was scary. It was exhilarating. Um, and, I mean, above all, it was it, it felt right. I mean, a lot of people who take direct action, um, the direct action we know and love, as opposed to the government's mealy-mouthed version, is... Um, it, we feel it's just commensurate to the scale of the problem. Mm. Um, you know, as Deb said before, it, it's got to be strategic. It's got to be the right thing to do at the right time. But you see how urgent climate change is, and it's hard not to feel like you need to disable the emissions yeah. as and when you can. And so it, it was incredibly empowering to to do that activity, you know, to have it go all around the world as a media story, really did its job in terms of focusing attention at the, the G8 and beyond on climate change and, and really force the issue, which I think was the objective there. Well, in that photo, you've actually got a mobile phone to your ear and I wondered, <laughs> could you tell us about the media? How do you, you know, what are good strategies for getting through to the media? They have done a very good job on climate change suppression, I think. I don't know if some mandate has come up from governments, keep it under the radar, don't tell anyone about it. But you have to get through to the media and what do you suggest? What's the best thing? Um, I... I a boss of mine told me when I first started getting involved in the movement that this is the conversation that we'll be having for the rest of our lives. And I think she's absolutely right. Um, I think one of the challenges we face, though, is that no one really wants to have a conversation about the same thing for all of their life. And we've got to continue to make it fresh and new and interesting. And unfortunately, one of the ways that we're going to see that is through the impacts manifesting of climate change and really drawing attention back. Um, at the moment, being fresh and new and doing different things that are different, yeah, it helps, and obviously that's what the activity did. It's hard not to ignore the fact that you've got activists living on a power station for two mm. and a half days. Um, 
I think the, what's going to get the most media attention and what I've seen in Australia has been success. The the rabid reaction you got last year from the government when the ANU decided to divest of only a handful of companies, the response we're seeing now to um, major banks pulling out of the, the Carmichael coal mine project yeah. and, and Newcastle deciding to divest, yes. Newcastle Council deciding yep. to divest. And we're talking about the, the biggest coal port in the world yep. and the council is saying we're going to divest from fossil fuels and the reaction it gets. And that's really built upon success and it, it helps to divide the progressive part of the community versus the Luddites. Um, and the more we see that success, the more you'll see that distinction between especially where the Abbott government's heading or is on climate change and mm. where the rest of the world, and I include a lot of industry and a lot of the business community are actually at too, which is a much more progressive place. Yeah. Well, the, the last question I'd like to ask you is about the court system, the legal approach. Um, and one of the, all these things that you've done, a lot of them would be illegal and so people take a huge risk doing those big actions. But one of the exp- experiences that changed me was sitting in the courthouse in Newcastle when some rising tide people had locked themselves onto the coal loading machinery and I could see the judge got it. She understood about the bigger implications of what they'd done and the whole issue was whether they had caused a loss of profit to the company and they turned themselves inside out to prove that they'd lost profit and in the end she judged, no, you haven't lost any profit, it's just slowed down the day. That day they were locked on and you've had to pay for the cherry picker to get them off but you haven't actually lost any profits. And she said to the rising tide people, you are entitled, I can see that you are alerting society to the climate impact of exported coal, which was such a breakthrough for me. I thought that was a marvellous moment. Um, But that was just one little court case. What is your experience of the court's ability to dimly see that greenhouse gas emissions are a kind of eco-crime I think that's becoming more recognised, but even taking that out of the equation, your experience I think is quite common of activists who've been in court, been up on charges, where even if a a magistrate would disagree with what they've done, they can see that the intent is honourable and is is just and no harm was meant to be caused. It's a peaceful action. Activists have stepped outside the law and they clearly had done that as a decision that they had not taken lightly. No one has – there's no pleasure in, in being arrested. There's no pleasure in having a criminal record. But there, there may be a satisfaction if it's, it's something that we've had to wear because we've done it for a greater cause. And that always gets noted upon. I've been in court several times. I've had those comments reflected by magistrates. I think one said that um, for a Greenpeace action that we'd you – know, yes, we were outside the law and we were being punished for that, but we – had intended simply to make an, an important statement and we'd made that statement in an, an extremely grand way. Um, and so that's, a, you know, it's in its own small way an important tip of the hat to not just our issue but the ability of people in Australia to conduct civil disobedience in a peaceful manner. Mm. Well, I'm hoping that Deborah's book, uh, Guarding Eden, will be taken up by teachers. I would buy a class set if I was teaching in a classroom because it's very inspiring to young people to see that you can do something, to counteract this big message in society that you can't do anything and understanding at the beginning that it may involve like that, court, court cases, incarceration. It might involve punishment, but it's worth it for the bigger picture. So just lastly, how did you get from Greenpeace to unfurling a banner over the 
poor old Westpac shareholders meeting. They oh. probably thought they were just going to have afternoon tea and you unfold a big banner. What was that about? Poor souls. That's even more of a dividend for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. I left Greenpeace after six and a bit wonderful years. It was a, a great place to work and it still is a, it's a great organisation. Um, and for me, I felt like I'd, I'd learnt enough to the point where I, I could be doing more and I wanted to create something. And I, I, at the time, I looked around the movement and, and had been winning some campaigns by stopping money going into environmentally damaging projects. And I thought, well, where is this project in the movement, where is something dedicated to doing this, to revealing information about who's funding what and helping others, helping individuals and others in the movement keep money out of fossil fuel projects. So that was the basis, that was the genesis of Market Forces and that's what we keep doing to this day. Okay, take note, listeners, Market Forces. We have talked about it before but that's his brand and that's the thing you can get involved with. Uh, We've just been talking to Julian Vincent from... Guarding Eden, the new book. Stay with the show. It's the Beyond Zero Emissions show. And after the break, we'll talk to psychologist Carol Ride. People out there in the radio world, show some love to 3CR. You know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, yeah, man, great radio station. It is how how it was built by community and the community ownership, and that's a powerful thing to have within community. So show some love, show some support, and please subscribe. From the north to the south to the east to the west, let the baller take you home. Island style represent your soul to the flow. Love your set represent. Raise your pride to the sky. Love it like it's the best. My power bring it back home. Hey, this is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. Now we're back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show tonight. We're talking about... The Champions of Climate Action, who feature in a new book called Guarding Eden. Carol Ride is a mathematician and a psychologist. So welcome, Carol. Uh, take, take us back to your childhood with that uh, little girl guide walking in the bush. Well, I was lucky to, I think, grow up in an era where kids could join the girl guides. It's a bit out of fashion now. but um, And I really did just... Love it, and what I loved was um, being out in the bush, but also I think learning how to care for for the bush and for nature and everything we did. We were every activity we had. We also had to think about how what impact we were having on the earth when we were doing whatever we were doing, whether it was putting up a tent or making a fire or or building a, a structure or whatever. So I think all that instilled in me a great love of nature and um, a great need to be concerned about caring for it, to preserve it uh, for those that followed on because the ethos was that you always left things um, after you'd finished camping or whatever activity that no one knew you'd been there. Mm. And uh, I think that just um, helped me just grow up to, to really... Just love being in nature and, um, of course, caring for it when we get to climate change. Well, what turns a lover of nature into a defender of nature? Because I think that's what you are. Well, um, I was probably like lots of people um, in the early uh, part of this um, century, um, 
knowing there was stuff going on about climate change but not really getting into it, reading mm. about it. And I had um, bought a couple of books and thinking I should learn about this and I put them beside my bed and didn't actually read them until a colleague of mine told me about The Weathermakers and she'd read it and said, you've got to read this book. And um, she was a very good friend and so I took her advice and managed to <laughs> to, to read what I'd been putting off reading about. This is Tim Flannery's Tim Flannery's, book. yeah, mm. The Weathermakers. And I think that it just changed everything for me and I... I became really, as you're saying, a defender. I, I became a climate activist. Um, I started to, well, f- form the Darabin Climate Action Group as, with with a few friends and, and that became a um, quite a viable group and still going 10 years later. And um, we've really, you know, just been like many of the climate action groups, mm. been very concerned about this issue in the community. Well, look, a lot of people are affected by nature. I, I'm a real city slicker, but I still can tell you the other day I was having a sandwich and a magpie came up to me and he was watching my sandwich and I threw him a little crumb, but he gave me the most beautiful song. You know, just for a second, a few seconds, a little song, and I thought, oh, I love that, just a little gift like that. But I think a lot of people are turned off when you talk about defending the biosphere because it's not just a forest. Even defending a forest or the barrier reef seems pretty big, but we're talking about defending the biosphere. Is it too big for people? What turns them off? Well, I think what what does turn them off um, is uh, the scale of the problem for some people, but also when they're in living in a country where um, our leaders are denying the the severity of the problem and the urgency of the problem, I think that is a turn-off to people. I think people will deal with a large problem if they have people who are taking leadership and helping them know what they can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we had a lot of people in 2007 um, with Rudd taking leadership that I think more people were able to um, rally to grapple with this problem because they felt encouraged that someone was leading the way and helping them know what they could do. And I think... The, the decline in support for climate change is actually to do with the lack of leadership rather than the people are truly turned off. I think psychologically we we can grapple with big problems with with um, other people um, engaged with us, but I think it's it's quite um, frightening when um, a problem is as extreme as climate change is in our faces and in the press and so on, and um, we feel helpless individually without collective a feeling of collective engagement with the problem. Mm. It's a divided collective, isn't it? We've been divided from each other. Yes, yes. And, and I think it is when people can join together with other people and they feel that supported, they will do all sorts of mm. amazing things. Mm. Well, another book you mentioned in your part of this book, Guarding Eden, was uh, a book I liked very much. It's called Merchants of Doubt and it was written by two scientists, Naomi Oreskes was one of them, and it had a big impact on me because I could see that climate deniers are well-financed and well-organised. They're probably better organised than the activists, and they've been supporting think tanks that have been putting out disinformation. So I think we've lost a decade or 20 years maybe because of their efforts. Um, I'd like you to talk about that and tell us a bit uh, how... 
I've never interviewed one, for example. I've never interviewed a denier. I thought I'll just avoid them. I'll just completely leave them off the picture and wait till they go away. But I think they are influencing our media. They play mind games on us. And I'd like you as a psychologist to tell us how to buffer ourselves, to make ourselves resilient to that. Well, I think they uh, they operate by um, cherry-picking uh, data and then using some bit of data from the, cl- the mass of climate data and then blowing it all out of proportions as if it's the whole story. And, of course, that's how human beings are, that if we hear new information that we don't like and it clashes with our other values or other things we believe, we are inclined through a process called confirmation bias to latch on to something Mm. that confirms um, what we don't want to hear. And I think they've exploited that to the nth by um, blowing up um, information that um, sows some sort of doubt in people's minds and people then just absorb it. So, um, And they've made um, an enterprise out of it and they've got, as you've said, they've got funding that's from the that's been found. It's from um, fossil fuel industry that has has supported those deniers, and they've they've just blown it all out of proportion. And it appeals to us as human beings, mm. uh, the part of us that doesn't want to know how bad things are. Um, we know that that happens with medical information that people can be told that smoking is bad for them, and um, they can be confronted with all sorts of information. But um, until often until something actually um, strike some sort of chord or they're really frightened in some way and feel like there's something they can do, they will deny that it's a reality. And I think that's what the the um, fossil fuel, um, or the deniers, sorry, have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to deal with them, wow. <laughs> um, well, I think that um, exposing their process, as Naomi Oreskes did in that book, um, is, is has done an amazing amount of of help, um, contributed a lot to people understanding what they're doing. Um, but um, I think it's also in f- people allowing themselves to actually become informed. Um, I think so it's a responsibility we have, I think, to actually know more about science and the scientific method and then to understand how people can cherry-pick data and then use it mm-hmm. to um, f- uh, just um, send myths around and, mm. and exploit that, that little myth for, forever. Um, do you think that many Australians are just apathetic or is it really just that we need better leadership? You've said leadership's really key to this, but a lot of people accuse us of being apathetic around the uh, refugee issue, for example, and around lots of social issues where we really need to do more. And climate's just so much bigger than all of those. Is it apathy or is it fear that makes us just elect governments like the one we've got and and not do enough? Well, we can have a very um, short... We we like seeing things on a short horizon, so... And that's what the government exports. They Mm. talk about, you know, hip pocket issues that are immediate. And and certainly as human beings, we do um, respond with energy around something that's immediate. And it's very hard for us to look beyond um, the next two or three years and look into the into the distant future it's it's challenging but I don't think that we that that, that we should give up on that because I think also um, people do care enormously about their children and grandchildren and do care about the wonderful beauties of, of the of the planet and our wonderful mm. um, barrier reef um, so we have to we have to 
um, bridge that gap rather than just be defeated by it. Yes. Well, on those brave words, we'll leave you for a moment, Carol. Thank you for that. That was Carol Ride. And now after a very short break, we're going to talk to Fiona Armstrong, who's also a great friend of this show. I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR. Treaty Now. We're back at the Beyond Zero Emissions show and tonight we're talking about Guarding Eden. Fiona Armstrong is a great friend of this radio show. She has spoken to us many times as the voice of the Climate and Health Alliance. But also she has put me in touch with some magnificent doctors and other health professionals to speak about the heat stress or the coal particulates in children's lungs or relocating hospitals and emergency departments so that the floodwaters won't get them when we start getting the sea level rise that everyone's telling us about. But tonight, Fiona will talk more about herself, I hope. So thank you for coming in, Fiona. Tell us what you learned on the family farm as you grew up. Oh, thanks, Vivian. What's well, really nice to be here. Um, look, I guess one of the things that I learned from that experience growing up in, you know, what is really um, arid um, outback Australia on a very large sheep and cattle property was um, a sense of custodianship for the land and 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 for nature. And I think um, when you're uh, responsible, as my parents were, for um, properties as vast as that and dependent on it for your livelihood, um, the um, the knowledge that you have to look after it, not only for your own um, interests but for future generations, is really um, paramount. And um, and and that's something that I think graziers, as my um, my family would call themselves, rather than farmers, um, feel very strongly. And and in a way, I think it's something that they share with our um, indigenous people in Australia. In that um, you know, people who live on the land and, and care for it in that way do really feel a very strong connection to it. So I think that that experience being exposed to kind of, you know, large, um, vast areas of land, um, travelling on it as I did on foot and on my horse um, over the years that I lived there, which was up until I, I was in my sort of mid-teens and went away to boarding school, um, you know, gave me a, a sense of appreciation for the wonder and diversity of nature mm. and also that um, we have a responsibility to look after it. I also like the bit about the sort of uh, make-do attitude. There's a lot of children and your father would sort of fix up a car that had broken down and had no doors and was all tied together with bits of string, it sounded like. Um, that's something that I think a lot of people are wanting to hear because I think we may be moving back to that. We have to get away from the consumer society. It doesn't sound like you grew up in the heart of consumer land over there. What was that like as a small child? Well, wonderful, really, and no great hardship. I mean, we had um, this amazing shed, sort of like, you know, magician's toolbox, really. There was nothing in there that you couldn't find that um, mm. couldn't be used to fix something. So, um, you know, cobbling things together. We, um, my, my family, my five brothers and my sister were, were all bush mechanics. If things broke down, you didn't take your car to be repaired. You, um, you, you repaired it there. So um, plenty of us had lots of experience mm. replacing brakes and moving engines in and out of, of vehicles and, um, and bikes and... Um, you know, building fences, cattle yards, 
um, buildings if necessary. So, um, yeah, you do, you learn to be um, very practical and I'm very infuriated by my um, my immediate family now who haven't grown up with that um, experience and the, the willingness to sort of look for help when you need to fix something. I'd much rather turn my mind to, um, you know, rustling around in the drawer to find something. Yeah. So, yes, it... Um, yeah, it was interesting. Well, you said in in your chapter, a globalisation is killing far, family farms. And right now, to use farmers' language, we are overstocking the planet and we're thrashing it to death. I wonder, is the climate challenge changing farming? Perhaps we can get past the globalisation of, you know, the, the effects of globalisation. Do you think that climate challenge will force more people back to rethinking that sort of family farm unit. Vandana Shiva talks about this all the time. Yeah. I really hope that we will. I mean, it's been a, a, a sadness for mm. people in the bush to watch family farms taken over by corporations who don't have that sort of sense of custodianship and therefore um, not treating the land in the way that it should. And I, I, I do think, I mean, and, and even in the few years that this book has been um, written, I think there's been a real resurgence in um, younger farmers, um, people returning to the land, recognising that that's important, that from a food security perspective, but also from a lifestyle perspective, that um, looking after the land, growing food are really noble, honest and, and, and very satisfying traditions and lifestyles. So um, I like to think that we we will see, and I think we are already seeing a, a resurgence in that sort of culture. Okay, well, look, Beyond Zero Emissions wrote a land use report and they saw huge gains in stopping land clearing, in reforesting marginal land, you know, where the head streams of the waters are, and cutting down some of the grazing and I wonder, do you think farmers should be paid to do this work of managing the land, maybe of not growing something on it, but paid to manage a forest, for example, and keep the carbon in it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we've got the foundations for that in the Carbon Farming Initiative. And I think that those things need to be exploited in terms of policy opportunities going forward. We hear a lot about renewable energy as sort of our response to climate change, but we're having a very narrow conversation about mm. what the sort of response are that we need and certainly landscape protection and um, um, you know storing our emissions in our in our soil and and stopping land clearing those are really important things that we can do that can reduce emissions at a, at a very large scale and they bring enormous benefits in terms of protecting biodiversity and restoring the quality of our air and our rivers and and our soil so mm. I hope that um, you know with the election of, of a new government um, in the next federal term that we'll start to see a greater sense of responsibility for those types of initiatives okay well I'm, I'm hoping that too because I think we do have to broaden the conversation away from that narrow focus on renewable energy we have to get back into what the land can do and beyond zeros trying to lead on that. Now, after you were a child on a farm, you became a nurse, and uh, you put me on to you have put me on to a lot of health professionals since you've been the head of the Climate and Health Alliance. And the recent Lancet report, we did a program on that, and it urged health professionals to speak to the community about climate change because health professionals are the trusted messengers. And I've latched onto this idea of trusted messengers, and then I thought, look, all the nurses I know are so busy working around these incredible shifts that they have to work you know in 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 human shifts i think and they when they talk to me they're talking about 
social problems like homelessness or addiction or problems, you know, that come, walk right in the door of the emergency room. They sort of don't have time to do climate. <laughs> climate sort of someone else will have to do that. And I say, well, you know, I tell them you're the trusted messengers. And the people who have spoken to us through you have been wonderful, like Liz Hanna on heat stress, you know, very poignant, really good speaker. So how do you try to mobilise and activate more people in the health sector to talk about climate? Yeah, well, look, it is incredibly exciting just in the last few years that we've been going to see a huge number of health professionals globally really mobilising around this issue. And um, and we're seeing an example of that in the lead up to Paris, uh, the global climate change negotiations in December, just a massive amount of health events and campaigns that are being launched and um, just in some of the initiatives that are underway here in Australia to mobilise people around people's climate marches in the the lead up to Paris and the buy-in that we're starting to see from health organisations is is really um, very encouraging and I think it takes a while um, and it also, I mean as Carol alluded to, people expect and want to see their political leaders taking responsibility and acting on something and and sometimes when they don't um, they're inclined to think well maybe it's not that important Mm. but I think what we're starting to see certainly here in Australia and around the world that health organisations are saying well even in the absence of political leadership we recognise that as civil society leaders um, and as health professionals we've got a responsibility to um, to care more from the more for more than just the patients that Mm. we see day to day so we're seeing organisations like the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, for example, who um, are, are a partner in the People's Climate March, they're beginning to mobilise their members, nurses and midwives, to encourage them to speak out on climate. We've got social workers and physiotherapists mm. and well, the psychologists under Carol's and others' stewardship are, are really beginning to speak out and very active doctors and, and public health professionals. Mm. Uh, next week I'll be in Hobart for the Population Health Congress and there's a huge number of sessions there on climate change, on health in the Anthropocene, what does it mean for people, what's the role of the health professions in responding and um, and that's not a, a rhetorical question, there's, mm. um, there's, a, there's a huge amount going on and, um, and a lot of strategic planning and, and action. So um, I think that, um, I mean, uh, the, the Lancet in 2009 called on the health professions to really to step up and to lend their voice to this conversation, I think it's taken a while but but health professionals really are stepping forward yes i i think so too look you just before we go on to a general discussion you mentioned two books that got you moving one was climate code red and the other one was good news for a change tell us where they took you Oh, look, really inspiring and it's very interesting to hear the commonality among yeah. many of us in the book in terms of the people who've inspired us. David Caroli comes up a lot, mm. Philip Sutton and David Spratt, the authors of Climate Code Red and, and, and the one that probably got me started, David Suzuki, you know, an inc- incredible inspiration around the world, good news for a change. And I think that, that that book and particularly its sort of central thesis about talking about the positive stories about what's possible was was something that really inspired me and and continues to inspire me in terms of using a message of hope rather Mm. than fear. Okay well um, we're on the Beyond Zero Emissions uh, 
program, listeners, if you've just tuned in. Um, and our theme tonight is Guarding Eden. I'd like now to talk to all of us, and I think we'll just have to share microphones if everyone can't quite get one. We'll have to have turn all the microphones on. Um, and I'd like each of you to say what... What this word means to you, guarding Eden. When I looked at that, I thought, oh, it's for me, climate change makes everything precious. I came down from the Sydney on the train and it was just a vista of <laughs> canola, fields and fields of canola outside Wagga and a vista of wattle in bloom and just towards dusk, all these kangaroos standing to attention. I just thought, this is normal. With four degrees of warming, all of this would be gone and we're on that path now. So, so for me... Guarding Eden is just that, guarding what we've got now. It's very conservative, I think, to want to guard Eden. But just could each of you tell me what that phrase means, guarding Eden? Who's first? Julian. Sure. Um, Okay, I mean, people will find parts of the world beautiful, parts of the world not. I think if if you look at a photograph of, of the planet Earth, taken from outside the planet Earth, look at it and think, where else are we going to be? Where else are we going to go? It's as beautiful and precious as, and as important as it will ever be. And that's, that's Eden. It's a place where somehow we can grow and live and thrive and survive. And that's all we've got. And we need to treat it as such. And so that, when I think of Eden, that's, that's what comes to mind for me. Deborah? Um, well, there were, there were some questions around the title, I have to say, because um, it was a title that I chose some time ago when I, when I was first writing the manuscript which was back in 2009 in the lead-up to Copenhagen. So it's changed shape many times. Yes. Apologies, I've obviously got this Melbourne virus thing. Yes. Po- sorry, um, Debbie. We'll, we'll oh, come no, back no. to you. Let's, we'll come back to but you. But, no, I'll just quickly yeah. say, though, because oh, <laughs> this might be my best moment, but um, <laughs> we decided in the end that what we have is still beautiful. It's not what would have been. It's certainly we have no idea what the planet looked like before the Industrial Revolution. Nothing can really, no images I don't think could really show us what nature was like. Mm. Um, but what we have is still beautiful. And so the Guardian, we just decided, well, we've, we've got to appreciate what mm. we have and do our absolute best to preserve it. But I think that's a really important thing to remember mm. is that we are looking, what we're looking at now, we've lost so much already. Mm. So it's good to be aware of that anyway. Yeah. Fiona. I think it's a really beautiful title. I love it. And I think it would have been a mistake to emphasise climate change too much in the first title. I think guarding connotes that sense of responsibility mm. that we have and Eden is what we're protecting. And I think, you know, it's hard to hear that word without it conjuring up something incredibly beautiful and incredibly precious. And I mm. think that that is what's really important. So I think it's a perfect title. I think when the guardian angels come, the other part of the the team behind this book, but um, Liz and Deb turn up as angels and then all their friends turn up as angels, it has that calming effect. I asked you before, well, the effect, it always has that effect on me. Of, oh, it's not just Hazelwood. It's not just this terrible situation or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's all of the human beings around us who also have extra and magical and creative capacities that aren't being shown yet, and, and we can invoke that. Bring out all your creativity in this. Carol, what do you think? Oh, look, I think it is about broadening it out to connecting the past with the, with the future. That's what comes to mind for me in thinking about how we, we, we maintain it and look after what's been there before and what is there now for the future. 
Okay. Well, another question I had about was um, about strategy. Um, my approach is to discredit the idea that there's nothing you can do. People say, that'll never happen. And I kind of go, well, anything can happen. And I try and bring people into this studio who will tell us what they're doing. And all around the community, I never run out of guests, do I, Jane? It's never a loss. What will we do? There's plenty to do. Um, so I try and do that here. And I bring the voices of communities who are struggling like that to the air. But I'd like to know what strategies do you think work and how are they trending at the moment? We've gone into divestment, we've gone into direct action, we've gone into associations of professional people helping, Carol through the psychology, helping people over, over ride the despair that they might be feeling. Julian, what do, you, what do you think? What strategies are trending as the best things to be doing at the moment? We're moving towards the Paris Peace Conference. You know, there's going to be so much being juggled around there. What do you think? So, it's a really hard question to I answer. Know. I'm not going to answer it the way I normally would, which I'm pretty hard-nosed about strategy. So, yeah. uh, And I've been taught by some very clever people about strategy. But I think, for me, what you're describing there invokes a sense of, of what the movement is and mm. what the movement has been has created of itself over the past recent you know, over the past few years mm. in particular i love being part of this movement because we seem to shape shift and we're very amorphous and we do the things that are that we collectively feel are the most important things to be doing at the time so you know if anyone who isn't really involved in the climate movement listening in feels like they, they want to see the the best strategies that the movement can come up with well just look around at what's there um, look at the, the ways in which we're engaging with different parts of the... Well, there's, you know, from the health sector, there's there's different parts of business, there's, there's yes, there's divestment work, there's work done at, you know, different grassroots groups, there's incredible actions happening up in places like Gloucester where the communities are gathering together and essentially trying to, you know, kick coal seam gas out of their community. And if people look at that and think, well, that's great, but how about this? Or how about that? Well, do it. Add that to the movement. Add another string to our bow. And get involved, because you're probably right. We need to throw everything we've got at this. Um, well, I think that's, um, that's brilliant what Julian's just said, because that's one of the key aims of the book, was not just to dis demystify who activists kind of are at the moment, but to create an opportunity for everybody to perceive themselves, to imagine what they could contribute, and to see that you know, we're all of different ages, we come from different walks of life, and we're all trying our best. But the more we do together and the more we do try, um, you know, we're seeing some pretty extraordinary results and the pushback that we're seeing is certainly an indication of us really starting to to make life unpleasant for the interests that we need to, to challenge. I think that we also need to um, acknowledge that there's the the diversity of the climate movement is able to also come together to do things and there is going to be a People's Climate March in November, on the 27th of November in Melbourne and I went to the planning meeting the other day and it's just amazing sort of energy from a diversity of climate groups and the the idea of this is to bring lots of people from all sorts of areas of, of the community and of, from the climate movement together to send a message to our leaders about our dissatisfaction with the the um, efforts that are being made by Australia and the shame that we feel about um, Australia taking such a pathetic 
um, measures to the to the um, Paris peace talks and and bringing people together to send that message um, in in ways that perhaps haven't been done before in the climate movement with a a large rally in Melbourne and following up ones in Sydney and Melbourne and I think that's quite exciting that this mm-hmm. diversity can come together for to do something together. Yes. <clears throat> Anything about Paris? Some of you are going to Paris, I think, to make trouble. Mm. <laughs> Fiona? Um, are you asking me about Paris or yes, about strategies? Yes, mm-hmm. making trouble, strategies, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well, about Paris. I'm hoping to go to Paris and, um, and have accreditation at the COP and participate in some of those conversations. I'll also be involved in lots of the health events and, um, and there's an extraordinary number of those and... Um, uh, one of which I'm pleased to say is World Health Organization will be partnering with our Global Climate and Health Alliance in the um, our first ever joint Global Climate and Health Summit that we began as a group of NGOs back in 2011. So we've now got one of the UN agencies on board with us and leading that work. So that's um, to me a really powerful example of what advocacy can do and um, and and also how how you know that shape shifting that Julian refers to and um, and the diversity that Carol refers to are, are beginning to manifest mm. I think it's very exciting but to me it's too much shape shape shifting I find it a very lonely job because most of the people I talk to in here are so vibrant and so excited by all this and so creative but when I go among other people it's this sort of dull feeling of I don't want to know about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. And I feel shut down. So do any of you share that? I'd like to just go back to diversity really quickly for a minute and the question that the, that you or the point that you raised about strategy because I do think that one of the things that Deb is endeavouring to do in her book and one of the things that I think is a really clear strategy on behalf of the climate movement at the moment is to show that the climate movement is very diverse and it's not just the environment movement. Okay. And I think that that's an important thing for us to be communicating because we need to move beyond talking about the climate movement as environmentalists yeah. and, and to bring in that really diverse um, range of sectors and communities that we know are affected by climate change and care about climate change. The Climate Guardians are going to Paris. Lots of angels will be in Australia at the People's March doing doing um, wonderful things here too. But a troop of 12 of us are going to Paris and we're going to take as many letters and artworks from young Australians whose lives will be profoundly affected by the decisions being made today. So we're, we're taking those to um, Laurence Tubiana, who's the, the lead negotiator for the French um, the French team, climate negotiating teams. And so we, yeah, we plan to basically, um, you know, demonstrate that that um, the Abbott government does not speak for Australians, that we're basically um, having our climate policies being determined by the transnational corporations. Okay, but just, um, I, I thought it was very interesting that you've got a green team of children here writing, some from Mokrob High School are going to be there and so on, and I thought teachers who are going to buy your book, remember teachers buy this book and use it as a class set, marvellous to get everyone talking, and giving heroes to your students.